Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Faria Amin. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. COVID-19 has highlighted many of the inequalities present in our society today. This includes systemic racism. While systemic racism is not a new problem and there have been calls for change over the years, there was a large resurgence in movements associated with tackling systemic racism this past summer. These include the Black Lives Matter and Defund the Police movements, which have occurred across North America and garnered international support. There is evidence that systemic racism occurs in numerous institutions, including but not limited to police forces, prisons, healthcare, and more. Today, I'm joined by two volunteers with the Toronto-based organization, Rittenhouse, A New Vision. Our discussion will cover topics such as the links between COVID-19 and systemic racism and social movements tackling systemic racism, and we'll also explore alternative methods of justice and how they can pave the way for a more just and equitable future. We are joined today by two guests from Rittenhouse, A New Vision. Rittenhouse is an organization that advocates for abolitionism and transformative justice through engaging in public education, training, and direct advocacy. Their newest initiative is the Transformative Justice Community Fund. Our first guest is Natty Tremblay. They are the executive director of Rittenhouse and have been involved with nonprofit organizations for over 20 years. Our second guest is Michael Nurse, who is a core Rittenhouse advisory member and provides harm reduction outreach work and facilitates transformative justice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Natty and Michael. You both volunteer with an organization called Rittenhouse. Can you tell us a bit about what the organization currently does and what your roles within it are? Ooh, I love it. Okay. So I am currently the executive director of Rittenhouse. I started on in February of 2020. So it's been quite a journey this year. Uh, So Rittenhouse has been around since the 90s, the early 90s. Um, It's a tiny but mighty abolitionist organization. It was started by this very interesting radical Quaker named Ruth Morris. Um, And she was an educator and a community organizer. And she like really like literally like housed um, uh, ex-prisoners in her home, trying to help them kind of reintegrate into society and did a lot of fundraising. And she ran a pen pal program. And she started the International um, Convergence on Abolition, Penal Abolition, ICOPA, which ran kind of all over the world for many years. Um, And then just actually Rittenhouse has had all kinds of amazing people in its in its community over the last almost 30 years whoa so they do um what i would say is the kind of like community building and educational side of abolition work uh and so restorative justice transformative justice education uh and that has been in prisons with prisoners with uh the families of prisoners but also and especially i feel like in the last um decade for sure i focus on doing transformative justice, education and capacity building with communities most uh, impacted and targeted by criminalization, policing, by the prison industrial complex, if you will. Um, and yeah, that I, I think is, is kind of where Rittenhouse is, is like building capacity right now in, in, in that educational piece. 
I participate in a community circle and most of the participants, or I would say all of the participants, um, well, most, are people who have gone through a training on the conflict resolution, transformative justice, building that out in, uh, in the communities. And, um, and we try to hold um, that community of people together and to build our capacity to expand um, the training uh, with others. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm part. And I came in uh, to Rittenhouse through participation in that training program. So it is mainly around building upon that training and trying to advance, you know, the opportunities to resolve conflict and, 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 and to recognize our ability to be responsible for creating justice for ourselves in the world. And so like to build on that. And we do that through a community circle. And that's where my, my, my participation in Rittenhouse mainly is. I also uh, um, assist with uh, workshops and so in community, like bringing those ideas out and helping other people recognize them and build their own capacity. So that, that is what my involvement is. Thank you for sharing. Um, Natty, you mentioned that this organization started in the 90s. Do you know a bit more about how and why this organization started? Prison reform has become a very hot topic now, but do you have any idea why they were inspired to create this organization way back in the 90s? Actually, I'm thinking about um, a text thread with a, a, a recent ex-prisoner uh, just today who was saying, well, I think abolition has been around since prisons have been around because uh, there have always been questions about uh, the, the, the obvious and more subtle issues of prisons. And, and I would say one of the biggest being like how it dehuman, dehumanizes people. And there's really no data that actually suggests that prisons reduce crime or that make our, our societies or our neighborhoods safer. And that in fact, much uh, of the crime that we would identify as like a breaking a law is not actually responded to. The police and our justice system are not even able to address um, an enormous amount of the crimes that happen in the world, if, or let's say in our societies, um, in our neighborhoods. So those are some things I want to say. In terms of um, when Rittenhouse started, I think that, um, that Ruth was um, doing restorative justice-based education and she was doing work in the prison system and she was part of the radical Quaker community. And uh, there's something pretty cool, I think that like there are spiritual groups, faith groups, um, that have aligned themselves with abolition because they're like, wait a minute, like my teachings, my spiritual belief systems suggest that no one is disposable, that in fact, we're supposed to invest more in people who are struggling. And that actually when we kind of deconstruct who ends up being targeted by policing, by um, incarceration, it's mostly low-income folks. It's mostly our most marginalized communities, uh, racialized communities, indigenous communities have and still continue to be the biggest disproportionately policed and incarcerated community in Canada, but also uh, folks with mental health, uh, mental illness, uh, folks who you know are uh, move through the world in, in non-normative ways have been policed uh, or in, uh, institutionalized, which I think is another form of incarceration. Um, queer and trans people. Like basically anyone who doesn't fit into the like normative model of, you know, moving through the world, being in the world. Um, so I, I think that Ruth was like this, you know what, this prison system and the way that prisoners are being treated, it doesn't align with my belief system. And I think that uh, she was a professor at the University of Toronto, um, that she was like, I'm going to leverage the resources that I have. 
I see that my skill set is in education. And I, I'm also going to say that in the 90s and well before that, it was kind of a boom in uh, learning and teaching about restorative justice. And I'm, I'm going to say that was because indigenous communities in Turtle Island, in particular in Canada, were like, hey, <laughs> we've been doing this thing for a while. And actually, we, we want to share it out because we see how our community is being so impacted by the prison industrial complex. And we want to propose that like, we can do this ourselves. We, we don't need to, to take our, our community members away. Actually, we'd prefer that uh, maybe we can work in parallel or actually let us like address crime, violence, harm internally because we've been doing it for centuries. And so like circle keeping, transformative justice is an indigenous practice. Um, we definitely see that a lot of marginalized folks are the ones who are targeted in prisons. And that kind of ties into systemic racism and how we see that there's systemic racism in so many different institutions, whether it's police brutality, disproportionate incarceration rates, addiction. So can you tell us a bit about why it's important to address the systemic racism in all of these institutions together and how it's very intersectional and holistic rather than trying to tackle them separately? Um, so it's not like, okay, if we just, if we just get rid of police, everything's going to be better tomorrow. That's not real. If we, if we replace the police with some other state sanctioned and state funded system, I don't know that that's going to change anything either. And I, I'd say one, I think that we have the roots, the seeds of so many of the healing modalities that we need within our communities. We've been germinating them for a long time, especially in marginalized communities. Um, and I just, I imagine if we, uh, you know, took some of the resources that went into policing, just as an example, and put that into um, resources for folks who are in a mental health crisis. I mean, I, I can go deeper into that, but um, so that's an intersectional piece, right? So like, if we, if we really look at the roots of why um, someone might um, do something that we would define as criminal or violence, more often than not, it's actually connected to some much deeper issue, much deeper issue. Um, our policing system doesn't get at those deeper issues. It doesn't care about those deeper issues. Transformative justice is all about getting at those deeper issues. What, what are the circumstances that perpetuate or created that behavior or that need or that, feeling, or that um, belief that the only way I'm gonna get fed is to steal something? Or the only way that I'm gonna get power is to um, use my body in a particular way that is actually violent, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so, also, if we want to get at like, why would that be prevalent? Why would a particular behavior, a type of um, crime be prevalent in particular communities? Oh, we have to get at the intersections of poverty, race, ability, sex, gender, all these kinds of things. So to me, transformative justice is aligned with anti-oppression, with um, movements for equality and freedom. It is a, a, just another part of that work. I'd actually argue that healing justice, which is kind of like, it's a culture. It's spirituality, it's ritual, it's all of those things, not just, oh, we had a circle of a mediated conflict. Woohoo! Talking about intersections. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. I, I, I want to give the floor to Michael. <laughs> I, um, good job, good job. I, I uh, don't know how much I can take on the floor, but just to answer the question about tackling all the, um, all the points of uh, concern rather than just singling out one agency or so. Um, for me, the focus is more on not really on looking at all the different points. I, I feel like that will become clear, but 
around transformative justice, for me, it is more about empowerment. Empowerment about people who are experiencing barriers which are perpetuated and manifested in different parts of society, uh, where power is entrenched and, and, and where people protect power and use power to manipulate outcomes. So I feel like the focus for me is on communities, building capacity to be able to identify barriers and to be able to challenge those barriers to create change. Thank you. So that actually touched on what my follow-up question was, which is how do you think we can do this? But based on what you've said, Michael, it sounds like you advocate for very local grassroots community type um, initiatives. And then from there, it can kind of grow into parts of the system. Um, as well, Natty, you mentioned that the ideas of abolition, they've been around since prisons have been around. Um, but it's clear that recently there has been a growing social consciousness about these issues. And it's also clear that COVID has especially shown a light on some of the issues facing marginalized communities. So can either of you speak to how COVID has maybe further impacted the Black community in Toronto? I feel like one, one of the things that I recognize with COVID is that it has, it has shown how, how, how integrated we are within society in terms of delivering services and, 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 and providing um, and helping people reach resources. But it also identified how, and it also identified how vulnerable we are to, to, to experiences like, like a virus. But it also identifies how limited the resources and services available to us are like when, when we look at uh, how people struggle to 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 to, to um, even to deal with childcare, uh, to go to work when they're still struggling to go to work. Uh, like you can't really hire a private um, babysitter to to come in and take off. And and it and even with the living, when we talk about the high rise of COVID in in, in areas where um, where mar marginalized people live and racialized people live. We talk about how many people live in one unit that you really don't have space inside your house to like to, 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 to distance or to step away to allow somebody space to heal. So it shows how congested living, it shows how challenged living for, uh, for people uh, uh, living marginalized from, from resources and in society. And and how limited the um, and how limited the, the resources are for them to to create any kind of healing, any kind of response to to to, to crises, and and also to how how difficult it is for for the system to respond in any meaningful way to to provide support. Because you hear, yeah, like these are the hot areas and these are the areas where COVID is flourishing. And we recognize that a lot of people live in there, people who have to go to work every day and, and interact uh, um, with, with other people, the people who live uh, with lots of people and multi-generational uh, people in, in one living space. But yet you don't hear any solutions coming forward. Like you don't really hear, okay, so this is how you can deal with it, you know. So like even the idea of, okay, this is where people are being impacted and we want to um, direct some resources um, to this area. You don't hear that. So like, even in the face of recognizing that there's certain populations that are being hit hard by COVID, you also recognize the reluctance to really support populations. I, I mean, when you look at a, a study that came out recently about out the amount of money that goes into charity, uh, like hundreds of dollars and only like three cents out of each uh, hundreds of dollars reach um, black communities like you begin to recognize like how underserved we are so 
and there is, and there's no real representation at the tables that make decisions about how services reach um, communities uh, of, of people of African descent. So when you look at all of this, you recognize the conundrum that, that, that people are in. And this crisis, um, this COVID crisis is just one example, but if there are no changes really being looked at, about how to, 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 to change this. Then the next crisis that come will, will do the same thing. The impact of COVID on the, on, on, on the communities and the populations of people of African descent has revealed that we are down in the pit and that we need to do some work and sure that we can deal with crises and we can deal with our everyday life. There are lots of crises impacting people of African descent, not just COVID. And uh, we need to, to begin to recognize that we have the power to create, to change, to deal with these things. Thank you for that, Michael. Um, it's clear that COVID has been a very harsh wake up call for many of us about the inequalities facing marginalized communities, especially BIPOC communities. And, but it's not clearly, it's not enough to just recognize them. We also need to make definitive change. And as you said, a great way to start this is by starting within yourself and then within your community and building on top of that. So thank you for that. So there are many who are still apprehensive about defunding the police or supporting Black Lives Matter. What are some common misconceptions about these movements that you'd like to dispel? And do you have any tips on how we can start facilitating these discussions with one another? On the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, and Yeah, and defunding police and so I I have been particularly struck by the courage and the efforts of the young brothers and sisters who have led the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I, I remember, I think it was about 2016, 2015, 2016, uh, when a group, uh, Black Lives Matter youngsters are uh, camped out in front of the uh, police headquarters in the winter time. I mean, intense. And they were there, the energy, but the commitment, the passion. Um, and it could only come from people who understood the experience of being targeted and victimized by police. And I was struck by the courage of, and, and the focus of, of these young people. And I, I left, I, I mean, I say that I haven't been involved in any of the protests led by people, uh, by Black Lives Matter, uh, but I have never forgotten and I've never stopped feeling the depth of that passion and that commitment. It connects also to, I'm a person who was 69 years old and it connects with my experience back in the 60s and 70s. We were protesting the same things, but not with, not with the, I mean, like the way that police are killing people of African descent these days is like, um, it's like incredible. It's like with a, with a total disregard because over the years we've been saying don't do it and we were being told that, you know, like there's a, um, the SIU, there's the police complaint, but they all result in the same conclusion. Oh, justified, justified, justified. And you begin to ask yourself, well, is it justified to just kill people of African descent just like that? And that is where the outcry comes. I feel a lot of us has been 
brought to a place so after years and years of protests and, and cries and hopes for change, we've come to a place where we believe nothing is going to change. And just to see the energy of the youth that decide and to be out in the street and to face one of the most powerful institutions in society, which is the police services, to face that and to stand there and to see our bodies and our beings are being put out here to demonstrate that we do matter, our lives do matter. To me, it's a powerful statement. It's an extremely powerful statement. But I believe a lot of us are afraid. We're afraid of change. We don't know what will come next and we're afraid. We're very afraid. And that is where I believe that the conversations between people need to start. When you look in communities, there are so many incidents that, that occur that we would say, okay, that a police response is necessary. Yet, because of people's fear of the police, yet, because of people's distrust in the police ability to deliver services to them in, in a fair and a healthy way. People solve, they say, okay, don't call no police, I don't trust the police, but people are able to solve many of these situations in community, among themselves. There are people within community that hold the status, that hold the respect, that you could go to and say, man, so and so and so is happening. And that person can step in and be given that respect and that opportunity to lead some change, to even be able to lead consultation without even any diploma or anything they could be able to, because they're trusted and respected within community. See that a person walking in the street um, at the corner, let's say of Dundas and Sherborne with no shoes on in, in, in a pajama pants can be surrounded by what? Seven police cars maybe two police officers per car, and yet there isn't one mental health support worker on the scene, you begin to recognize why there need to be a defunding of police. There need to be a shift away from the resources that go to police to where they're actually needed. Because seven police to, the, to, to respond to one person walking barefoot in the middle of the intersection isn't necessary, it isn't helpful and it doesn't bring about the change that you need. So to sum up, Black Lives Matter is a deeply meaningful demonstration of the youth, of the youth and the future that, that the youth envision for, uh, for, for, for people of Africa said a change and, and, and it is powerful enough that it can challenge where that, that, that pain and agony is coming from. A lot of people, uh, my generation and maybe a little younger, don't even want to be recognized by the police because once the police get to know you, you're known to police and then you've got everything that comes with that. And yet you see these young people willing to stand out there and put their very being on the line. To me, it makes me emotional. Well, I say power to Black Lives Matter. Thank you, Black Lives Matter. And yeah, I, I say that because it is a statement, it is an action that is deeply meaningful to the community. And I deeply respect your sacrifice. Thank you, Michael. Um, as you mentioned, the Black community has been calling for this same thing for years but the determination of Black Lives Matter protesters right now is very admirable. We see how the pandemic has impacted prisons, such as overcrowding, some of the outbreaks, and this is kind of why these calls for a move away from a 
retributive form of justice have been um, discussed now during the pandemic. So do you think that these impacts such as overcrowding and the outbreaks from the pandemic, if these effects can lead to any long-term changes in the system now that these discussions are taking place? I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful. I do think um, there has been a lot of mobilizing in this last year um, and in the streets, but also kind of coalition building. Um, so defundthepolice.ca, um, noprisons.ca, these are all kind of new manifestations uh, and that are coalitions of many different um, like ad hoc groups and pre-existing groups and, um, and also some like you know, pretty long existing institutions actually signing up also. Um, and I think that's what we need. I think we need like a, to continue to build our, our coalitions and our movements because the changes aren't gonna come tomorrow. And we're seeing that, you know, it actually has taken so much organizing just to, just to encourage a little bit of decarceration, which is to say to, to release some prisoners and to just draw attention to the experiences of prisoners during COVID and also generally. Um, it's it's so rarely reported on, and I think that is just like a huge issue in our in our mainstream media generally that we don't report on the issues that impact marginalized communities, and certainly not on prisoners. So um, that pressure needs to keep keep being pushed and and mounted. Um, I am really hopeful, and and you know I, I'll, I'll I'll riff off of Michael like the BLM movement has created a mainstream national and international dialogue about police and prisons. And we need that. It benefits everyone, not just black communities. Uh, so we, we are and we should be indebted. Um, I, I, I think that we could close many of the prisons actually tomorrow, actually, and it would save money and it would save lives. Um, and we could reinvest those resources because so much money goes into those prisons and detention centers and immigration detention centers. Uh, versus, again, as I said before, investing into social infrastructure, into people, um, and, and actually paying, you know, Michael, you name like those community leaders that actually show up and actually deal with crisis and conflict, resourcing those folks to do that good work that they're doing, resourcing healers, resourcing facilitators. Um, I, what else to say on the, on the prisons? I, I think like short term, like there's some real advocacy needed to just, just PPE right? Just like masks for people. Um, solitary confinement is not a humane response to a COVID pandemic breakout in our prison. South, uh, uh, Toronto South currently has a breakout of, I mean, they've reported 25, but it's probably more like 100 people who have COVID right now. And um, they can't get visitors. They haven't had visitors that have been allowed to have visitors since the, this pandemic has broke out. Like, what what kind of life is that, that you're living by yourself in a cell? Wondering if in, in two minutes when you get your cell check from one of the security guards, whether you're gonna get COVID and not get any medical care. <laughs> My gosh, and, and that has to be called into question why we, we would um, back that kind of treatment of people. And that's not just, again, that's also in uh, immigration detention, detention centers. And often that's people who haven't even seen a trial have been picked up on the street and are just sitting waiting for a trial, which is to say they haven't done anything criminal or it certainly hasn't been proven. If we're gonna use the language of our, our penal justice system. I chime in there too, like for me, uh, a, a statement coming out of Black Lives Matter is my life has value. 
And when I say it that way, it is because let's say that we look at the legalization of cannabis. And we look at that against the background of decades of arresting particularly racialized people and people of African descent, indigenous them for possession at the rate of I arrest you and I charge you and, and while you're there I catch you smoking again and give you another charge so it's not just about possession anymore it is about failing to comply and that goes in now till you're going to get a sentence and, and so on and so forth and in that whole thing it is not just then about the cannabis it is about an accumulation of criminal convictions that a person faces that causes then family disruption you're in jail, you're not there with your children, um, you come out, you're struggling to find a job because you have a conviction. And then you look today to see that cannabis has been legalized and that there are people who can open up dispensaries and the people who have built this industry continue to be victimized and excluded from this industry, from participation in this industry because of these convictions. And then you ask yourself, well, if cannabis is okay now, why am I still being penalized for, 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 for being involved with cannabis then? So does my life have any value? Sure, my life has value. So I need to be respected the same way that people are being treated today. So it is things like this that you look at in a justice system and you say that this is really brutal and I need to speak against it because it isn't working for me and I need better than this. So it is about people in community recognizing like, hey, you know what? The system doesn't control me, but I shape the system that I live in. And when you look at other communities, especially privileged communities and, 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 uh, and wealthy communities, you see that they do that. So we have the power of people and we should be able to bring that together. Humanity is for everyone. And we need to recognize that humanity within ourselves and the humanity in each other. And even though there are difficult challenges, that if we keep that humanity in the focus and, uh, and work, and as Nati say, you know that we all have that goodness within us. If we recognize that, then I believe that we can work towards creating these changes. But the justice system certainly doesn't honor that. And prisons certainly destroy that. So. Yeah, th th those are some of the things that, I, that I'm thinking. Thank you, Michael and Nadi, for those answers. Can you tell us a bit about how systemic racism in prisons are connected? There's a, there's a little phrase, uh, it's not justice, it's just us. And I feel to me like that, that sums it up. Like when you walk into prison and you see the people who are in prisons, then you begin to recognize yeah, how, how systemic racism is. Yeah. And it goes into to the policing. Like um, I, I remember um, remember experience of uh, using drugs in Parkdale. And one of the experiences was about listening for those bikes, those police bicycles that would uh, come into the area, like almost like stealth-like, but they had a few little noises that you would hear and recognize. So you was always on the alert for these little bicycles. And I remember sitting in Parkdale one night with a couple who had come from Leaside. And we were sitting there thing, and then they got concerned, well, let's go into my area and stuff. And we went to the area and we sat in a park in Leaside. And there was laughter and noise and stuff that would usually alert people to call police or that would alert police to come. But we sat in Leaside until about 7 o'clock in the morning. 
And I was still uh, sort of like looking for the police to appear, but there was never a police car, a police bicycle. And I just thought of, hey, the way that certain communities are policed is quite different from how other uh, communities are policed. And if your focus is on just policing certain communities, of course you arrested uh, to, to go into jails. I remember back in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, when the waiting list of new recruits for police was the highest in 31 division and in, um, and in Regent Park, it was what, 51, 52 division, because it was like arresting people was like, and then you get your, uh, your arrest, your, your, your promotion is based on your arrest record. So the more people you arrest, the, the, the faster you become promoted. And I mean, if you've got areas where you know that people are exposed, um, they don't really have places where they can really go and, and use drugs and smoke weed, whatever the case might be, then you have the opportunity to arrest more people. So the focus then is, hey, if I stop that guy 10 times out of, nine times out of 10, there's gonna be something that I can charge that guy for. And I'll be frank, some 10 to, eight times out of 10, There'll be things that I can charge them for that they weren't even doing. So, like, and nobody's going to be there to protest. Nobody's going to be there to, to, to challenge. And it's just going to be, oh, yeah, they deserve it. So, of people is like a targeted thing, a targeted thing towards racialized people and indigenous people. And then you get the people in jail. And once you get into the jail system, you can be trapped in that jail system because the conditions that you might be given in court that you need to live by is, is really difficult. And then you find yourself rearrested and rearrested and, and then you're, you're stuck in that jail system. So prison is kind of like full of racialized people, indigenous people, um, and it is built that way. Like you've got, and it's not just with the police, and it's not just with the prisons. So the system serves some people, but it certainly uh, destroys the lives of others because at the end of the day, you've got families and communities that are totally destroyed. And not just for one day or two days, but for a long time. It, the, the, the criminal justice system is about the perpetuation of the same racism that exists in society. And if that is the, 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 the makeup of society, then that system of, 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 uh, of dispensing justice is going to be the same. I'm just, I want to riff off that and I'm going to add uh, to me, uh, and most abolitionists, I would say, would the police and the prison systems are critical features of colonialism and colonialism being, you know, a, a complex word to describe the process and means of stealing land and resources from people that wasn't yours to begin with. And that in the context of North America has included absolutely stealing the lands of indigenous people. The RCMP were, was a body formed to police, uh, to sweep away, to incarcerate, to kill indigenous people. That's in many ways people would say it's still true. They certainly aren't protecting <laughs> indigenous people. If that were the case, why are people still fighting for an inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women, as an example, if the RCMP and the police are meant to be keeping people safe, but they keep certain people safe when we're talking about um, 
systemic racism. So to me, the police and the prison system have maintained structures of enslavement, of genocide, of assimilation, of segregation, but not just them. Our immigration laws, our border laws, laws around citizenship, um, sterilization practices in hospitals, child welfare apprehensions, all of these are mechanisms that have specifically been wielded against racialized people and poor people for so long. When people are saying, well, we could just reform it. I mean, there have been lots of reform over the years. That is very true. But also it is an in, intentionally violent. It is intentionally, I would argue, racist. It is intentionally colonial, a tool to control particular groups of people in particular racialized and marginalized communities. So that feels really important to say. <laughs> I also want to give a shout out. I didn't want to forget to give a shout out to the Toronto Prisoner Rights Project. Um, for folks in Toronto who are wondering about how to organize uh, in solidarity with prisoners and specifically around this decarceration campaign, um, they're doing a lot of really great work and they're very active. Um, they have a lot of really amazing campaigns online and on the streets, worth checking out. Yeah, doing shout outs, I want to recognize back in the 80s there, there used to be an organization called SERPA, the Citizens Independent Review of Police Activities. And it was an amazing organization. Like I, I called on them for, for support a couple of times. I got them connected to others. Uh, but resources and people's availability, I think, weighed heavy. And that is one of the things that we face in community organizing, um, being able to access resources that allow things to be sustainable and allow people, because people suffer from burnout as well, because then you get like one or two people carrying the load and, and being the face and there, and these are some of the things that, that we challenge. But I just want to shout out that organization. I do not remember the names of the people who started it, but I just want to shout them out and let people know that, um, that this kind of effort existed. And uh, so that if they do hear this program, that they know that um, they're being recognized, not forgotten. Thank you for that. You both shared some very important insights into systemic racism and prisons and other institutions that are present in our society today. And thank you for sharing those resources as well. You've been listening to a special collaborative Beyond the Headlines episode with Rittenhouse. We will continue our discussion with them after a short musical break. This is Swooner by the Zolas. <laughs> Oh, hi.
Spooner by the Zolas. Welcome back to Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join us in our conversation with Rittenhouse by tweeting at us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. Rittenhouse's values also emphasize a move away from our current justice model and advocate for abolitionism and a move towards transformative or restorative justice. Can you tell our listeners about what these models of justice are? As you mentioned before, they originate from First Nations and Indigenous communities, but what would a world with these models look like if they were adopted in mainstream society? Well, I love that. It's a great question. Um, I mean, I want to say that I, I am seeing these models all around, um, which is super exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a not so distant future when uh, people, communities are more resourced to kind of scale those things up. Um, I could say within kind of two spirit and indigenous communities in, in Toronto, for sure, these things are these things are happening and, and also very much in the queer and trans communities and the disability justice uh, movement. So I do think right now we're kind of in a, a fledgling time, which is to say, like even within indigenous communities, they have been struggling to to uh, maintain, like just stay alive and also just to maintain their culture and spiritual practice. So healing justice is one aspect of, of their cultures. Granted, they would say, um, or we would say that uh, it's transformative justice is a way of life. It's not just like I, I do this thing or I do that thing. So to me, I do think the next step or this, this kind of phase that we're in right now is around education and consciousness building. I do think that's like partly or largely why Rittenhouse is, is investing a lot of energy into the educational piece. So like online resources, workshops, like consultations, this is where every, where, wherever people are interested in learning about transformative justice. So a beginning place are the principles. So let's deconstruct our justice system. Let's talk about what harm it actually creates. Let's talk about what it actually does provide in terms of safety. It's not that difficult <laughs> when you bring a group of people together uh, with any amount of diversity uh, for people to kind of map. Oh, okay. Yeah, actually it is really harmful. These are ways that I've been harmed by this part of the system and this part of the system and this part of the system. There's not even that much debate that shows up to be honest. Um, and then, okay, so let's unpack what are the ideologies behind those systems and where did they come from? Cause they're not all of ours. We didn't all grow up. Well, we did. If we grew up in, in North America, we did grow up with these ideologies and are unfortunately also 
woven into the ideologies of kind of a punitive justice so that there is a clear right and wrong always. There's always a clear right and wrong, um, which I, that, I, I would argue that kind of belief system, it aligns really well with um, groups of people who have power, <laughs> who maintain power. And uh, these kinds of, I think, really simplistic belief systems, but also that justice can only look like punishment. The only way that we can have justice is punishment. And that is the piece that needs to be really torn up. And thankfully, there are indigenous cultures all over the world who have you know, belief systems, Ubuntu, that uh, justice is about healing and transformation. And most people would say, when I'm in a position where I've caused harm, do I wanna be punished? Is that how I wanna be treated? Or do I want people to treat me fairly, to see me as a whole person, to recognize that maybe that bad practice, that behavior comes from something deeper than I just am a bad person. And it almost always does. And when people, you know, go, oh, what about the psychopaths? Just that's a very small group of people, a very small group of people. That's really different from people who've experienced immense violence of trauma in their lives. But we know that people can heal from trauma. We know that they can, especially if we invest resources in that. If we center that. To me, I think about how many people have ended up in trouble who at the root were, were suffering from mental illness and isolation and trauma. And if only they could have easily accessed resources for that. And having um, family members who have struggled with addictions and trying to find and working with young people who struggle with addictions and depression, it's incredibly difficult to find resources for people, meaningful, culturally sensitive, spiritual resources for people. And that would make all the difference. And that is transformative justice, is getting at the roots of harmful behaviors. And that's where the intersectional analysis is so important. Where do those behaviors come from? How are they actually connected to all these forms of systemic violence? How are we actually all implicated? So that's the consciousness building. And then I would say there's like these, these skills. How do, how do I deal with conflict? When someone confronts me, how do I respond? When someone tells me I cause them harm, am I able to handle that? Am I able to be humble? Am I able to apologize sincerely? Am I willing to do the deep work of transforming behaviors that maybe even benefit me? I think that's where we're at right now in the transformative justice movement is, is building those, those skills. And when people say defund the police, I hope that they also are saying, invest in transformative justice, invest in communities organizing together and the power of people, I hope. Definitely. Thank you so much for those answers, Nadia and Michael. Is there anything like either of you think the government can do to specifically assist with this? I'd like to see when, when um, governments and so invest money in communities that they put some money into building community engagement, building collaboration, projects that do that. So people begin to talk with each other, begin to, 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 to recognize each other, as well as when we start to challenge those barriers that exist, yeah, that, that, that stop us from living our lives as we choose, uh, but that we are able to build some community engagement uh, projects that do that. My... I'm a bit, I think I'm jaded because I've been working in the not-for-profit sector for, for many years, well, 20 years, basically in Toronto and totally, you named it, Michael, you, you realize there's so much competition for crumbs. And also there's this, you know, there can be this pendulum swing in our government um, between elections and what was resourced one in one election cycle is no longer interesting and is no longer resourced. So 
you do all of this work and then it's unfunded or you get half the amount of money you got before. And totally that often you have to be constantly creating new projects and programs to get funded. Um, so there's a lot of problems with the government funded system of, of community work for sure. I think, um, I think mental health is a big one, a really, really big one. Um, but I'm always, I'm reluctant to say, um, you know, let's, let's rely on the government to invest in these things. So one, one strategy I think that is really exciting and is happening is coalitions of um, frontline workers, of mental health care providers, and of uh, different agencies that provide mental health care, sharing resources together. Um, I want to give a shout out to Reach Out, the Reach Out Toronto Network. So they're, um, they're working on building a mental health emergency service in Toronto. It's 24-7 with a, a call line. Um, and that's building off of the data that, you know, on, on minimum 30,000 calls a year are made that are specifically about mental health crisis. Um, anyway, and, and right now it's police who, who interface with those, with those calls. So um, mental health is a big one. Um, I feel like uh, housing, education, good food programs, and in particular in low-income low communities, um, clearing student loan debt for low-income people would be great. That would be a great thing tomorrow. I know too many people who have been carrying student loan debt of $40,000 or more for a decade or more coming from low-income communities and working three jobs and never being able to move forward. Um, and I also know a lot of people who are like, I, you know, I may as well just sit on OW for 20 years and that's going to be a quicker way of declaring my, or filing for bankruptcy. These can't, these can't be our choices. Okay. Um, and, and I, I, one thing I want to say um, that I, I think it's really important that we, we don't go the route of assuming that we need the state or even professionals to do justice work. I think that's a mistake. One of the things that I would like to see really uh, focused on is, is stigma, uh, the internalized stigma and the structural stigma and systemic stigma, that uh, societal stigma that, that, that we face. Um, and two of the things that I find um, that contribute, one is uh, mental health challenges, as Nadi had mentioned, I find because so often, especially within community of people of African descent, we do not understand uh, to a wide extent, we do not respond to, to mental health um, situations in ways that are compassionate. And there's fear, uh, there's a lack of understanding. And then when we try to, to respond to it, we, we, we don't really want to call the services that are available because we know we're not gonna get the kind of support that you want. So like you, people hide things and, 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 and then you got you going through depression, going through uh, uh, experiences of uh, bipolar and then being out on the streets, which brings me then to, to the other point around, that Nati raised as well, around homelessness. But I feel like within the communities, within the, among the populations of people, of, uh, of racialized people, and, and so the biggest concern for me right now among those communities is uh, the need for decriminalization of, of all psychoactive substances. Because this is where people get really hung up and, and get caught up. Um, you're dealing with a lot of stress, you're exploring, you're looking for, for, for some excitement and, and you're caught with drugs and your life becomes totally out of control. Like another, the system takes over your life. And I believe that that is at the core of stigma for, uh, for a lot of people, uh, especially people who, who, who use those substances. And is at the core of, of, of the system being able to, to victimize 
and, and destroy people's lives. So I say um, I am for decriminalization of all psychoactive substances, and it takes that bite out of the system from, from being able to destroy people's lives. That would be, yeah. Thank you for those insights. Um, it definitely sounds like both of you think that the most meaningful change comes from the grassroots organizations. And we have seen how powerful these local organizations can be. And if the government does decide to assist, which as you mentioned, there are some reservations about due to political changes and other um, bureaucratic processes, um, they need to these changes that the government will make need to be in consultation with these groups and actually really having this meaningful dialogue with these groups to figure out what they want. Um, our final question of today is just about what Rittenhouse's initiatives are. Are there any specific initiatives that you would like our listeners to know about about Rittenhouse? Um, well, so we're doing a lot of education work and that's kind of where we're, we're trying to put a lot of emphasis on education work. And so um, that entails like one-off workshops um, that entails like deeper trainings, intensive trainings. We're gonna be running uh, an intensive training series online this winter. Um, it entails um, circle keeping. So communities who are in conflict can contact us and um, we have a pretty big network of folks who do circle keeping. Um, or mediation, um, also supporting folks to set up um, circles of support or pods, if you will. There's a lot of different language, but basically, for example, someone who's been harmed um, or is uh, a victim of uh, domestic abuse, creating a pod around them that's moving with them over a period of time to support their healing. Um, so helping people set that up. We can also provide um, some financial resources. Um, we do a lot of consulting work with agencies that provide services for low-income communities, for, uh, for sex workers, for drug users, um, for folks who are, and I and name those communities because I think that they're most impacted by um, policing. Um, and so actually that's how Michael came to connect with Rittenhouse through a training series with uh, community outreach workers. And that's some really good juicy work. Um, it's training plus um, resourcing people to actually practice as like conflict negotiators uh, on the floor in community health centers and in agencies that provide really necessary and important services for folks. Because even those spaces, they often will rely on kind of barring or um, basically like, yeah, um, refusing service and barring people from service because they've broken a rule or because they've um, caused harm. Um, and so trying to uh, offer up different frameworks and strategies um, so that's one thing. Um, we also do uh, transformative justice through the arts. So all kinds of different things using the arts to explore transformative justice um, because we want it to be inclusive and accessible. And we recognize that, you know, just talking and using intellectual language is not accessible to most communities who are actually impacted by these things. And rather using the arts to kind of get at like, what's your lived experience? How does that feel when you get into your body and you think about trauma, like what shows up? Um, in a safe way, of course, and making art to express, you know, the kind of worlds we want to live in. Uh, we also produce resources, so pamphlets and books. Um, and we also have a pen pal program, so uh, connecting with prisoners. Um, and we do a lot of uh, coalition and network building across uh, transformative justice and abolition work. And that's both in Toronto and kind of nationally, and I'd even say internationally, which is exciting. 
Um, and we try to um, support circle, like regular circles, which is to say, so folks who are practitioners, DJ practitioners, creating spaces for folks to come together and talk about their work and um, to strategize, to share about, you know, questions, things that, that show up in the work that are, you know, that require uh, reciprocity, you know, talking with other folks. Um, yeah, I think those that's in, in summation <laughs> is some of the work that we do. That's it for all of my questions today. So just thank you so much for joining me and for really teaching our listeners about systemic racism, how it's impacted by COVID, how it's connected to our prison system, police brutality, and just teaching us about what other forms of justice can be like and what these models would look like in our world. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Once again, that was Natty Tremblay and Michael Nurse. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the topics of the pandemic's relation to systemic racism, current social movements, and alternative methods of justice. Today's show was produced by myself, Aaron Christensen, and Taya Coper. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.